Father in heaven, we come to you. Thank you for your great mercy and grace to us, giving us truth uh, that is very foreign to our natural bent and uh, difficult for us, Lord, and we are in need of your spirit, your empowerment, uh, your enablement to uh, be pleasing, to live a life that's pleasing to you. We thank you for the beatitudes that the Lord Jesus gave us. We pray you'll open our understanding and help us to be able to grasp what it is you want us to do. And uh, may you continue your work of transforming our hearts, of uh, sanctifying us, that we may live a life that's pleasing to you. We ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 8, this is the sixth beatitude, beatitude meaning blessing. Uh, these are the blessings that uh, Jesus enumerates for us in Matthew chapter 5 as he began the Sermon on the Mount. And he's describing the people that are in his kingdom. How we get into the kingdom and how we live in the kingdom. So Matthew chapter 5 verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. <laughs> blessed are the pure in heart. This is an incredible statement. Who is sufficient to measure up to this? Who is able to even talk about it? What Jesus says here is so all-encompassing, so deep, so broad in scope, how can we discuss it and plumb its depths? God has always been concerned with the heart, desiring purity of heart. And I feel like I'm over my head in dealing with this. Hopefully, we can begin to scratch the surface a little bit. The spiritual climate back in the day when Jesus gave the Beatitudes, we're going to discuss that for a little bit, what it was like. John the Baptist had come preaching, preaching repentance, preparing people for the coming of the Messiah. Many went to him and were baptized, probably from various motives or reasons, but among those would have been people who were genuinely burdened by sin and seeking forgiveness. Pharisees and Sadducees were not among them, obviously not having a repentant heart, as shown by their continued enmity against the Savior when he appeared. They even said that John had a devil in Luke 7:33. So later they're going to say Jesus had a devil, but they even said John had a devil. What about the religion of the Jews of that day? Because of, man's sin, because of man's sin, the tendency of his heart is always away from God, away from truth. And even if man is given the truth, over time he reverts to his ways instead of God's ways, and the truth is lost. The Jews had been given the law, and even though they had the truth of Abraham being justified by faith, for the most part, this was lost in the typical man-made religion of self-effort. It's always the way it is. People naturally assume that they can and must earn their way to favor 
with God by being good, good enough. The Jews fell into this mistake, this error, and they tried to keep the law to gain favor with God. They added to the law, they subtracted from the law. They ended up with a religion of tradition opposed to the law. <laughs> the question arose in those days, what must we do to be saved, to be right with God? They were a frustrated bunch. Here's some examples. The first example is a Pharisee named Nicodemus. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That's John 3, 2. Jesus knew what was going on in his heart and answered Nicodemus's question even before he asked it. To enter his kingdom, there had to be a new birth. Being born from above, he said. Being born from God. And Jesus, in the end, in verse 15 of John chapter 3, said that it was through faith in him man obtains eternal life. Another example, John chapter 6, verses 28 to 29. After Jesus had fed the 5,000, they said therefore to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? They had the law, the traditions, the rituals, but they must have felt like there was something missing. They wanted to know how to get into the kingdom. Did they suspect that keeping the law was not enough? What was Jesus' answer? He answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's John 6, 29. Another example, Luke 10, 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So there it is again. This man may have had the wrong motive. It says here that he stood up and put Jesus to the test. He had the wrong motive, but he was asking the right question, and he was asking the question many were evidently asking. People were wanting to know how to be accepted by God. Keeping the law just didn't do it. If God is holy and righteous, how can I ever be ex acceptable to him when I can't keep his law? How can I be free from my guilt and know I am pleasing to him? Another example is in Luke 18, 18. And a ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Here was the same issue. He told Jesus that he kept the law. Yet he came with his, this question. In his heart, he must have felt very uneasy. Maybe keeping the law wasn't enough. Man's self-effort, good works, Following tradition, ritual, are never enough. There's no certainty. When is my law-keeping ever enough? That's the big question. When could law-keeping ever be enough? I'm already in over my head in sin. Nothing I do can erase that. 
And here Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. Who could possibly measure up? How pure is pure? Later in this same sermon, Jesus says, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Matthew 5, 48. In other words, the standard is God himself. And that is, humanly, way out of reach. But this is where the Beatitudes bring us, to the end of ourselves. Remember, the first Beatitude was, blessed are the poor in spirit. That is, those who realize that they have no hope, nothing to commend themselves to God. And Jesus is saying that it is not all the religious activity and law-keeping that gets you into the kingdom. Something has to be done to man's heart, and only God can do that. So let's look at this verse. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. First of all, he says blessed, and we've already talked about this previously. Who are the blessed? Who are those who find favor with God? who have his approval, who have his joy and peace, who are right with God. Here he says it's the pure in heart. So, what is the heart? Jesus speaks of the human heart and of a certain condition of that heart as being the key to true blessedness. So what is the heart that Jesus speaks of? Our word heart comes from a Greek word for heart, and we get the word cardiac from that Greek word. Peoples around the earth use various parts of the body metaphorically to speak of their emotions, their feelings, their personality, the real them. For instance, in Indonesia, where my wife and I worked for a number of years, the word they use is liver, which is used in their Bible, to translate this word, heart. <laughs> and in Indonesia, when we spoke of the liver, you know, I never thought about it being the organ. It always was the heart. And when I think and speak in English of the heart, I'm not thinking of the organ at all. I'm thinking of the real person, the real you, the real me. That's the heart. And it's the same way in other languages, even though they use different physical organs maybe to speak of it. The biblical use of the word heart includes our thought processes and our will. Jesus asked the scribes, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Matthew 9, 4. It is not only the center of our emotions, but our thoughts our thoughts and will as well. Uh, I'm going to quote from Genesis 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Matthew, uh, Genesis 6, 5. God destroyed the world with a global flood because of man's heart problem. Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. David said, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 19.14 The heart is who I am. 
It's a real me. And Jesus here speaks of purity of heart. The word means to make clean, to be pure, to, to, to be clean. It is used of refining metals until all impurity is removed, leaving pure metal. So it means unsullied, clean, unadulterated, without impurity. When I go to the store and look for pure apple juice, I'm looking for apple juice that has no sugar, no added water, or anything else added. I want uncontaminated, without foreign ingredients, apple juice. If this idea is transferred to the state of the heart, it would refer to a heart that is totally devoted to God, single-minded as to its purpose, honoring God in all things, totally righteous in its thought and behavior, in other words, loving God with all my heart. But this spells big-time trouble for me because my heart is not devoted to the Lord, not righteous, not single-minded in desire to honor Him. That's the problem. Impurity of heart is what separates us from God. This is... Uh, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. God tells us in Romans 3, 9 to 11, that all have sinned, and also there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seek for God. Elsewhere in Scripture, we're told that the heart is deceitful above all things, Desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17, 9. This is not a flattering picture, but it isn't flattering pictures we need right now. We need truth about ourselves, and that is precisely what God gives us. We are separated from God because of our sin, and it's only by having a pure heart that I can be right with God. So I'm back to where the Jews were in Jesus' day. How can I be right with God? Jesus said only the pure in heart will enter his kingdom. So the next question is, how can I, who have a polluted heart, ever hope to see the kingdom of God? Can I work on my heart? Make it cleaner? Relative to what? Relative to others? No, the standard is God. Cleaning my heart is impossible. Only God can do it. So then we come to God's rescue operation. Matthew 19 24 to 26. Here's what Jesus said. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I'm going to pause this right there. I think the Jews had the idea that you could tell who was blessed by God, by how wealthy they were. So here's the wealthy, the obviously blessed by God. So... If anybody's going to make it to heaven, probably them. You know, I think that was their idea. Here Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Well, that blew their mind. And when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? And you can understand. If the people that they thought were blessed aren't about to make it into heaven, then who can? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, 
With people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In essence, Jesus replied to them saying, Who can? No one. Period. That's the situation. No one can enter the kingdom. We can't cleanse our own heart, but here's the hope of the gospel. Romans 4, verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Jesus Christ justifies, declares righteous, the ungodly. I'm one of the ungodly. So I, I qualify. You have to be ungodly to be, to be justified. Yeah. My own efforts will never succeed in giving me a pure heart. But Jesus says that if I trust in him, he will consider my trust in him as righteousness, purity of heart. Galatians 2.16 says this, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, by what he does, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. When our hearts have been changed, when we have come to Christ, and we are accounted pure in heart, then God begins to as Pastor Dan has said in the past, and I like this term because it speaks of the, the pain of it all, God begins to chisel us practically into the image of Christ. <laughs> Sanctification is not an easy thing. Uh, it is a painful process because he's changing us into the image of Christ. Very different from the, the old nature that we're used to. It is a work of grace and mercy of God in our heart. And what will, they, what will take place for these people who are pure in heart, who have come to Christ and he has justified them? What does this mean, to be pure, uh, to, that they shall see God? It says that they shall see God. What does that mean? Um, frankly, I don't know. <laughs> I say that because in my study of this, it seems like all my teachers don't know either. <laughs> it's been a subject of much discussion down through the ages. Much discussion. And it's much discussion because people don't know. It's a mystery. At the very least, what this means is that they are in the kingdom of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says... We in this life begin to see a little, but through a glass darkly. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. And then he goes on, he says this, The blessedness of seeing God is inconceivable beyond our imagination. Yeah, I can imagine that that's true. <laughs> um, in history, it's been called the beatific vision. Seeing God, the beatific vision. And beatific, I think, comes from this same word of beatitude, uh, <clears throat> meaning blessed. A very blessed vision of seeing God. 
Moses wanted to see God. Uh, uh, Thomas said to Jesus, you know, Lord, if you just show us the Father, we'll, we'll be happy. It'll be sufficient. And Jesus said, Thomas, have I been so long with you? And don't you know that he has seen me, has seen the Father? Uh, but that's not like seeing God in all his glory. And I think to see God, God would have to give us great strengthening. I mean, look at uh, Daniel, uh, John in the, in the book of Revelation. When they were approached by the Lord in all his glory, they just fell down like dead men. Uh, yeah, I just can't really quite conceive of it all. Um, <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We see as in a glass the glory of the Lord and are being changed into his image. But that's not what we see in this life. is not like what we're going to see. John says in 1 John 3.2, Beloved, we are ch God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. And I, that's, that's true. We, it's not yet appeared. And I think seeing God has not yet appeared either. Um, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And I think this is referring to Christ. So, you know, I leave you with a question mark. Uh, they shall see God. Whatever it is, I'm sure it's absolutely fantastic, as Mark Lloyd-Jones mentioned. Let's move on to the next beatitude, Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. There has been peace on earth once when God placed Adam and Eve in the garden. There will be peace on earth again someday. The problem is the heart of man. Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false witness, slanders. Evil is part of man's nature. I just recently read of the Kellogg Bryan Pact. You ever heard of the Kellogg Bryan Pact? I'd never heard of it before. It was made in 1928. That's post World War I, pre World War II. This pact went into effect in 1929. It was an agreement in which the signatory nations promised never again to declare or take part in war as a method of resolving disputes or conflicts of whatever nature or of whatever origin they may be. Guess who signed this agreement? <laughs> the United States? Germany. Japan. And the Soviet Union. <laughs> Chief culprits. <laughs> oh. I also read where somewhere around from 40 B.C., before Christ, to 1968, there was a total of 14,553 known wars. Since 1945, that's since World War II, there have been over 70 wars and several hundred in international outbreaks of violence. And this is to say nothing of innumerable wars, tribal wars, that have gone on among the peoples of the earth. The strife among nations is simply the national outworking of strife in the home 
among people in the heart. Man is sinful, selfish, greedy, covetous, proud, and wicked. The problem is in his heart. We are against our creator, against those who, created, who are created in his image. Strife infects every relationship we have. That's why there are wars. Who has the answer to the problem of strife, bickering, fighting, war? The only one who can solve our problems and bring peace is the Lord Jesus Christ. Only he can deal with the issue. It isn't summits, negotiations, conferences, peace treaties. And it all begins in our heart. It is a heart issue that only God can deal with. And it's only his people who are poor in spirit, grieved over sin, who submit to God, who are meek, who thirst for righteousness, who show mercy to people, and who are righteous, that is, pure in heart, who are effective agents of God to bring peace in this turbulence that we are in. God calls us to be his peacemakers. What is peace? God's peace is not like the world's peace. God's peace is not just a cessation of hostility between two sides, but it is an, an infusion of righteousness into the mix that not only stops the war, but brings healing. God's peace is applied righteousness. Men can stop fighting without righteousness, but at best, all men's peace deals amount to are nothing more than cold wars. Hatreds, grievances are simply buried to spring to life later on down the line. We just kick the can down the road a ways. God's peace does not sweep anything under the rug. His peace deals with the real issues and brings about repentance, forgiveness, and transformation of heart so that the antagonists are reconciled. James says, James 3.17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. First pure, then peaceable. It is probably not a coincidence that the beatitude immediately preceding this one concerned purity of heart, righteousness in the heart. There can be no true peace without righteousness. Unless two parties in conflict realize their sin and come to God for cleansing, they can have no peace. Ignoring problems is not going to produce peace. That's not righteousness. Righteousness does not evade the problems. Hebrews 12:14 says, "Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord." Holiness or righteousness is imperative in peacemaking. Psalm 85 verse 10 says, Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. So to have peace, there must be righteousness. Charles Spurgeon says, It is well to understand that we are to be first pure, then peaceable. Our peaceableness is never to be a compact with sin or toleration of evil. We must set our faces like flint against everything that is contrary to God and His holiness. Purity being in our souls a settled matter. And we can go on to peaceableness, unquote. True peace can only exist in the presence of righteousness, purity, and holiness. 
Compromising purity to bring peace will end in the loss of both. What is the source of peace? God is the source of peace. This truth is found throughout the Bible. Since the Garden of Eden, where we lost our peace, the only peace that man has known is the peace that comes from God. We will never find peace on this sin-cursed earth apart from God. Peace is a gift from his hand. Listen to these statements. I shall also grant peace in the land so that you may lie down with no one making you tremble. Leviticus 26.6 The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Psalm 29.11 Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9.6 Romans 15.33 Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. 1 Corinthians 14, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And 2 Thessalonians 3, 16, Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. Christ is the foundation of peace for us. Without his death and resurrection, there could never be peace between God and man or between man and man. Colossians 1, 19 to 20 says, For it was the Father's good pleasure through him to reconcile all things to himself. Reconcile means peace. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. There was no peace at the cross, but the result of the cross is peace. The judgment that should have fallen on us fell on Christ allowing God to justly forgive us. The enmity are not keeping the law was taken out of the way. The penalty was served on Christ. And not only that, he kept the law perfectly and applies his righteousness to our hearts. That all makes for peace between God and man. John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, said this concerning Jesus, that he, Jesus was coming to guide our feet into the way of peace, Luke 1.79. Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be fearful, John 14.27. Later he said this, These things have I spoken to you that in me ye may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. John 16, 33. Peace is only for those who belong to God through Jesus Christ. Only such people can enjoy true peace and can be peacemakers. John MacArthur says, I quote, God can work peace through us only if he has worked peace in us, unquote. So let's talk about the peacemakers. That would be those of us who know the Lord Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 5.18, Paul
Paul says that God has reconciled us to himself. Reconciliation means peace. Concerning the outworking of our daily lives, Paul says that God has called us to peace, to living peacefully. 1 Corinthians 7.15 God's people are unique. They are a people who have found peace and are called upon by the Lord to go and make peace. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, Paul says that God has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That's peacemaking. What are the characteristics of a true peacemaker? We'll just mention a few here. First of all, to be a peacemaker, you have to have peace with God yourself. All peacemakers have been rebels against God. All of us have at one time been at war with God. And Paul says that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Romans 5.10. The Bible says Christ died for the ungodly. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. When God changed our hearts and regenerated us and saved us by faith in Jesus Christ, our sin was forgiven and the righteousness of God was imputed to us, credited to our account. The war was over. Peace had at last come. Not only that, but those at peace with God are to, en to enjoy his peace in daily life. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And then Philippians 4.7, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The Christian is to live a life of peace. So first of all, you must have made your peace with God to be a peacemaker. Secondly, the peacemaker takes his peace to others. Jesus said he was sending his disciples into the world, and they were to take his gospel to the ends of the earth. The peacemaker preaches peace through Jesus Christ, Acts 10, 36. His feet are to be shod with the gospel of peace, Ephesians 6, 15. When Christ is preached, peace is preached. MacArthur says, to bring a person to Jesus Christ is the most peacemaking act a human being can perform. It is beyond what any diplomat or statesman can accomplish. And Romans 10, 15 says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. Thirdly, the third thing a peacemaker does is enhance and foster peace between people. He not only seeks to build the bridge of peace between God and others, but he also seeks to bridge the barriers among us, you know, between people. The first person involved, of course, is himself. He works to bring peace between others and himself. In Matthew 5, 23 and following, Jesus speaks of, of leaving our gift at the altar if we remember someone has something against us. God wants us to be at peace with each other. Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Romans 12, 18. <clears throat> And then the blessing. What's the blessing? 
The blessing is, first of all, they're blessed. They have God's approval, his peace, his approbation, approval, joy, peace. It says they will be called sons of God. Carson, Donald Carson, has an interesting thought here. Um, He says in Jewish thought, son often bears the meaning of partaker of the character of. (laughs) Let me give you an illustration. When Jesus called John and James sons of thunder, what did he mean? Sons of thunder. Thunder is explosive. And uh, they were acting that way. And he, so he called them sons of thunder. Remember, uh, here, sons of God may refer to the fact that the peacemaker expresses the character of his father in heaven. In other words, you will be called sons of God because you are demonstrating that you are a peacemaker. Your father in heaven is a peacemaker, and you're acting like him. These are kingdom people, sons of their father in heaven. But here's some irony. Peacemaking can bring anything but peace. Peacemaking God's way can bring great conflict and trouble. The greatest peace, sorry, the greatest peacemaker ever said this, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Now that's a heavy blow. Man does not seek God. God seeks man. The God of this world has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. 2 Corinthians 4.4 Therefore, God's peacemakers are often intensely hated by the world. And that brings us to the last of these blessings. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 to 12. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew 5, 10 to 12. This is the last of the Beatitudes. First of all, I'm going to just say a few words about persecution. It says here in verse 10, Blessed are those who have been persecuted. And in verse 11, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. And I'm just concentrating on the word persecuted here. 
for a, for a second. The word used here for persecute has its root meaning to put to flight, to drive away, to pursue. From that initial meaning, develop the idea of persecution with all its attendant aspects, such as harassment and abusive behavior. There are all kinds of ways that people can be persecuted. Jesus expands on what is included in verse 11 when he speaks uh, about insults. The word insults means reproach, revile, um, to speak disparagingly of a person in a manner that is not justified. And finally, he includes false accusations as being persecution. So there are many forms and greater or lesser degrees of persecution. Who does the world hate? Who does the world hate? What a sad thing that those whose hearts have been changed, who demonstrate the character of Christ in their lives, who submit to God in meekness, thirst for righteousness, show mercy to others, and make peace, should be so hated. What an indictment of the state of this world. But how could it be otherwise? What did they do to the Prince of Peace? Isaiah 9, 6. Even before the Sermon on the Mount, the Jews were conspiring to destroy Jesus. Mark 3, 6. Jesus did not waste time getting himself into hot water. And here's the deal. Jesus said, The world hates me. Because I bear witness about it that its deeds are evil. John 7, 7. So who does the world hate? Hates Christ. Let me just uh, run down a few of the uh, things that took place in his life, in Christ's life. Jesus suffered the insults of those who hated him. John 8, 48 Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil. John 10, 20. Many of them said, he hath a devil and is mad. He was mocked by the Roman soldiers. Matthew 27, 29 says, and they kneeled down before him. Um, they kneeled down before him and mocked him saying, hail, king of the Jews. He was reviled by the thieves who were crucified with him. Passers-by and the Jews insulted him, and those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him. False accusations? Listen to this. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Matthew eleven nineteen. There's two things that the world does not like, that the world hates, and that is righteousness and Christ. Romans 1, 30 says they are haters of God. So the bottom line is that Jesus Christ is hated by the world. This beatitude is a double whammy. 
Jesus goes to extra length on this one. Note that in verse 10, it still speaks in the third person, <clears throat> excuse me, and in verses 11 to 12 are in the second person. Blessed are they, is in verse 10, as in the other Beatitudes, and blessed are you, second person, uh, in 11 and 12. Perhaps he's applying this beatitude more to his disciples. Don't know. Don't know what, what, what the purpose of it is. In any case, there is extra emphasis placed by our Lord on this beatitude. Notice in verse 10, it is being persecuted for righteousness. And in verse 11, it is because of me, Jesus. It is because of living for Christ, who is righteousness itself. We've been chosen out of the world to be his. Therefore, we get what he got, persecution. This is not blessed are the persecuted, but blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness and because of me. Jesus said this, if the world hates you, this is uh, John 15, 18 to 21, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. The natural bent of man's heart is rebellion against God. Man is at enmity with God, is enslaved to sin, enslaved to the devil, the God of this world. Is it any wonder, then, that those who are in his kingdom, in Christ's kingdom, are also hated by the world? <clears throat> when you live out the kind of life that Jesus has been just describing then you also are going to be bearing witness about the world that its deeds are evil and persecution will be inevitable. Just living righteously around unrighteous people condemn, condemns them. They feel condemned. They don't like it. They feel their guilt. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Thessalonians 3, 2-4. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. And he's, now he's writing this to the Thessalonians. That no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we, we are destined for this. We are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Suffering for the sake of righteousness is part of the program. God's program. That's the way it is. 
1 Peter 4, 12 to 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So Peter is saying, don't be surprised. I mean, you got to know this is the way it is. You identify with Christ, they hate him, they're going to hate you. Just goes, with the, just goes with it. It's all part of it. It became clear that following Jesus was going to be costly business. All who propose to take up his name must also take up his cross. And that means ready to die. The cost of being his is high. Um, <clears throat> Philippians 1.29 For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Do you know what that's saying? The word granted here is from the same root as the word for grace. It means to grant as a favor or grant graciously. What is granted as a favor? For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. What's been granted as a favor? To believe in Christ. To believe in Christ. I get that. Speaking of a woman named Lydia in Acts 16, 14, we read, Whose heart the Lord opened. The Lord opens the heart. To have a changed heart is indeed a wondrous favor, great grace. But Paul says there's a second favor here. What's the second favor? To suffer. To suffer for his sake. I had to grapple with that in my heart. How can it be that I am being graced with suffering? So here's how I see it. We've been granted the gift of Christ, but with him comes the whole package. Faith in him and suffering for his sake. <clears throat> Excuse me. Why? Because this is how the world treats Christ. It's how the world is going to treat those who have embraced Christ. Those in the kingdom. Those in the kingdom seek to follow Christ and not be popular. No, not be popular with the world. You can't be. They hate Christ. Jesus said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. For, for their fathers were doing the same things to the false prophets. Oh, the false prophets were well spoken of, well liked. I see this as two sides of one coin. You get Christ and the kingdom. And the other side, you get suffering too with it. It's all part of the package. Folks, this is not how I would choose, but it's how our Heavenly Father, who knows best, has chosen. This is it. So what should we do? Get out of here, find a cave, a monastery, bail out, back to monasticism. No. Listen to Jesus. 
When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me, and you will bear witness also. John 15, 26 and 27. Where does God want us? Right here. Right here, among the heathen, among the world. We are still in the world, not of it. Let us be faithful witnesses of our Lord Jesus, no matter what it costs. If he wanted to remove us from the earth right after gracing us with salvation, he could have done that. He didn't. He's gracing us with the opportunity to be persecuted. That's what it amounts to. So, let us embrace Christ with all our hearts and go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. Hebrews 13, 13. And demonstrate righteousness, his character, to the world. And there is great reward. Jesus said that those, the reward for this, of being persecuted, is theirs is the kingdom. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the same as in the first beatitude. The poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here, Jesus describes it further in verse 12. He says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. We are commanded to rejoice and be glad. The word glad means to leap exceedingly. One one author says, means leap exceedingly. Another author says it's unrestrained, exuberant gladness. (laughs) Why? For your reward in heaven is great. If Jesus says it's great, I'm sure it must be far beyond anything we can imagine. So we must look on things in light of eternity. We are here so briefly, but we're so tied up with the things of this life. But what we do here counts for eternity. In Acts 5, 41, the disciples rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Paul says, for our momentary light affliction. And now get this, this is Paul, light affliction? Stoned to death, beatings, several nights in the sea, you know, uh, shipwrecked. Uh, momentary, very temporal, very, very brief. Our momentary light affliction is working out for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Folks, we walk by faith. We've never seen angels. We've never seen Christ. But we walk by faith. We believe his word. And Jesus says this. We're an elite company. Look at the company we're in. In the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This this is the way it goes. When God encounters the world, the world hates God. That's just the way it is. So how do we handle it? Here's what Jesus did. 
This is 1 Peter 2.23. Who being reviled was not reviling in return. While suffering, he was uttering no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's what Jesus did. What did he do? Entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. What are we to do? How do we handle it? Therefore, those who also who suffer according to the will of God must entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing good. 1 Peter 4, 19. Same thing. We just follow the Savior. He entrusted himself to the Lord. We do the same. This brings us to the end of these Beatitudes. I'd like to close real briefly with a, <clears throat> a quick illustration. We are to be like Christ and uh, Stuart Balaban, a number of weeks ago, talked about the, the uh, attributes of God and that they are, he didn't use the word balanced, but they're, in, they're in, in harmony, they're harmonious, they're in harmony. And I like that term that uh, Christ's attributes are in harmony. He is perfect and he demonstrates the, the character of these um, beatitudes perfectly. So I'd like to use an illustration for you uh, to help you to maybe remember the Beatitudes and remember what our goal is. Our goal is to be like Christ, to follow him, be like him. And what I, uh, I want to ask you first is, do you know what a teeter-totter is? You do know what a teeter-totter is. I know that they're extinct now, but... <laughs> a teeter-totter is best if two kids on each side are roughly the same weight. They're balanced. It, it balances better. It makes it work better. Um, a teeter-totter is monodirectional. It's just one way. What if you had an object, I won't even call it a teeter-totter now, that is omnidirectional. Omnidirectional. All directions. And balanced. And I want to use this. This is an object that is omnidirectionally balanced. It looks, it's, it's intriguing because it looks like it should fall. But it doesn't. It doesn't fall because it's balanced 360 degrees. So there it is, and I'm just using this as a, as a symbol or an illustration. Jesus Christ perfectly shows the character of these uh, beatitudes that we've been looking at. If this was going to be a symbol of my life, it'd be falling off in all directions, you know. It would not be balanced at all. But Christ is making us, right now, sanctifying us, making us like himself. And he gave us these beatitudes so we know how we are to live in the kingdom. And our purpose is to be like Christ and to, uh, to demonstrate his glory, his character in our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, your provision for us. Thank you so much, Lord, that you have given us the Lord Jesus to be our Savior. He is our purity of heart. And uh, we thank you that you are at work within us uh, to cause us to be increasingly like the Lord Jesus in the way that we live. And... Uh, we ask for your grace, your help in living a life that honors you and pleases you. In Jesus' name, amen.